0: Find in your Bibles Romans chapter 12 and Romans chapter 16. Romans 12 and Romans 16. And when you found those, we're going to read together Romans 12, 1 and 2, and then we're going to jump to the end of Romans 16 and read that together. So find that, and then I'd invite you to stand as we read God's Word together. And the reason that we stand is it actually delineates a little bit. It delineates from like, what Joel's up there saying in his finite ability and what God has said in his infinite wisdom, right? And so we acknowledge like the Word of God has been given to us. And so we stand, we read it. If there's anything else, if there's only one thing that you're going to hear today, we want it to be this. So, so even if you're a child, go ahead and stand and you can, you can listen while we read together. We're going to read Romans 12, 1 and 2. And then we're going to jump over to Romans 16, starting in verse 25, and read the doxology. I'll read as you guys follow along. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Romans 16 Thinking about this morning, a couple titles for sermons have come to mind. Transformers and Butterflies was one. I tossed that aside. I thought that was a little ridiculous. Although we will talk about those things. um, But really what it boiled down to is like, what is true worship? What is true worship? Because as we've talked about in Romans 1-11, 1-11, through 11, we've talked about this understanding of, of what actually takes place in the believer's heart as God, by His power, works salvation for His glory. As we take hold of the grace that we've received because of the work of Jesus Christ by faith, as we take hold of that by faith, believing that it's true, what does that look like in the life of the believer? And we've, we've seen Paul progressively work through the first eight chapters, talking particularly to the individual. Like, what does it mean that Christ has saved you? Did you earn it? No. Right? I love his rhetoric. I love his sarcasm. Some of the questions that he asked. Like, some of you enjoy that sense of humor too. So read through it again and watch as Paul like makes these arguments in Romans. And then says, so should we just keep on sinning so that grace would abound? No, by no means. That's ridiculous. No, God has saved us from our sin and saved us into righteousness. Now we live. In His righteousness, and then verses nine through eleven, he talked about like that's that's in the individual. But what what about in the grand scheme of creation, from creation and fall and redemption and restoration? Like, what is God doing both in the Jews as His chosen people, and now in the Gentiles, grafting them in and making them a people of His own possession? And so Paul has this beautiful display of what we would call orthodoxy. Right, right belief, right doctrine, right understanding. But then in between 11 and 12, he transitions from this orthodoxy, what we believe about how God has saved, to what it looks like, orthopraxy, the right worship of him. And so these, these five chapters get me really excited because I'm one of those people that say, I want to know what to do, like give me something tangible, and, and it's great. Paul does that, but you can't have 12 through 16 without 1 through 11, so don't detach these things, and, and maybe we're doing a disservice even by doing this today, but I just want you to anchor yourself in the reality that you are saved by grace. So as you read this, and as you see, like what does that life of grace look like lived out, don't take it as a checklist that we want to make it so that we could say, yes, I'm good enough for God. We've already established that none of us are righteous. No, not one. All of us have sinned and all of us need this grace and an outside righteousness that has been worked for us. And so we rest in that today. But listen, because there's a call. What are you saved to? You're saved from sin. You're saved from death. What are you saved to? You're saved to worship. You're saved to cherishing the good news of Jesus and worshiping Him. And, and hopefully one of the things we're going to blow up today is the idea that we come and we worship for an hour and a half, maybe a little longer if you're on the setup and tear down and you feel like, I count that too, right? No. Like all of life is worship. All of it. The problem is that like all of us, I've spent most of this past week worshiping me. And so thank, thankfully, we get, we've already confessed that to be true. And so there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So just like Matt said in the prayer confession, listen, yes, acknowledge it, but don't live there. Man, we're created for so much more. We're created to worship the God who created everything. The God who saved us and gave His, his own Son so that you and I would be reconciled to a holy God. Because that's true. Now what do we do? Well, we just read it. Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If this is true, all of life becomes worship. All of it. All of it is in response to the truth that you and I are saved by grace and then we get to live in this way. Remember Romans 5 said, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, like we didn't, it's not our works that none of us can boast, but we've taken hold of the works of Jesus and said, He did that for me. So I've been justified by faith and I have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The grace in which we stand. I think what we're going to be able to do is connect that idea that we stand in grace to the everyday living that is worship in our lives. Today, you and I stand in the grace of God. If we're in Christ, we stand in his grace. What does that look like? What does it mean that we stand in His grace? That's the question that we're looking at today. Let me put it another way. We've titled this series uh, The Gospel in Romans The Power of God for Salvation. And so, the question that we want to answer today in our time, and that we're going to need the Holy Spirit to actually do in our hearts and in our minds. To answer this question, the question is this, what does the power of God for salvation look like displayed in the life of the redeemed? That's the question. So as we're reading through this, take note. And we're going we're gonna to do a blitz. like We're just going to mow through it real fast. So everybody's got homework. Go back, read 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. Write down, hey, what does that look like in the life of the redeemed? So let's ask God to do that. Let's ask Him to reveal Himself to us today that we would have a glimpse of His glory, a glimpse of His beauty, and it would stir in us worship. God, I thank You, Lord. Thank You for Your kindness to us this morning. That You would meet us in this place. That You would call us to worship You with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then that You've You've written down your word for us to read. So that we're not left to figure that out for ourselves, and yet we have the power of the Spirit that, that is transforming us into worshipers of you, Lord. Thank you for the guidance of your word. Thank you that it doesn't return void or null, but it has an effect and a change in us because of your spirit that's working in each and every believer today. God, we we do, we echo what Matt said. We pray that everywhere where your word and your spirit are moving, that you would be changing and transforming your church for your glory. Thank you, Lord, that we are not the center of the story this morning, but you are, and yet you've invited us, God, to be part of that story. And so, Lord, give us right understanding of what worship looks like. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, chapter 12 really looks like the life in the church, life amongst the believers. And so, Paul is writing and he's, he's reminding the church that's in Rome of what it looks like to live together, what it looks like to honor one another, what it looks like to serve one another. And he's beginning it with this calling for us not to be conformed, but to be transformed. He points us to what the fruit of the Gospel. The Gospel work is not something that you and I do. It's the work that Jesus has done. Now, it has implications for our life. It changes the way that we live. But the Gospel work is done by Jesus. So what does the fruit of that Gospel work look like in our lives? That's what we see in these chapters. Before you start taking notes, on how you should live, or actually, most of the time we take notes on how our spouse, or maybe our children, or our siblings, or our roommates should live, because that's what we do. We take these notes, and then we go home and we remind each other, don't forget, pastor said so-and-so on such-and-such date. But before we start doing that and making this a list about those things, we have to remember and pay attention to the words that Paul is using here. Um, I've got, got my Greek dictionary out. I'm, not, I'm working on my Greek. I'm like 100 days in Duolingo and I'm using Greek and Spanish, so I'm not too good at Greek. But I'm working on the Greek a little bit. So I have to go to the dictionary. But two of the words that I wanted to know, like what do those words mean? What does conform versus transform mean? Because he tells us not to do one and then to do the other. So conform is this word, systematizo? to assimilate or to be conformed, to be or become behaviorally or socially similar to, conceived as being or becoming shaped or molded to a certain pattern. So this conforming that he's saying, don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of the world. Really, that's this outward thing. It's the thing that most of us try to do. We try to just fit in with the world, We try to be conformed to the pattern of this world. And that's really an out, outer shell type of thing. It, for, for most of us, it's a behavior that's seen by others. And so we try to, you know, pretty that up. Make it acceptable. Make it fit in our context. And I think we've really done a disservice because the movie Transformers has these robots that actually don't change like their, their inner being, but they change they their outside. And we call them transformers, but, so it messes us up some. Because that would probably be more like conforming. More like an outside appearance change. But Paul says that, no, we don't want to conform, but we do want to be transformed. The word that he uses there is this metamorpho, to be Transformed. To be or become changed in outward appearance or expression as manifesting a change in nature or essence. So it's an out, yeah, it's still an outer change, but it comes from inside. That's right. I said butterflies earlier. The metamorphosis is what takes place when you have this ugly, nasty caterpillar. Maybe some of you like them. I don't know. But if you're a gardener, you don't like them because they eat all your plants. But we put up with them because what's going to take place is that ugly caterpillar is going to become this really pretty caterpillar no no it doesn't the caterpillar doesn't become a better version of the caterpillar it becomes something else it's transformed from a caterpillar into a butterfly like they don't look anything alike they're they're different beings And so what Paul is saying is, listen, I don't want you to conform. God doesn't call us to conform to the patterns of the world around us, but He calls us to be transformed from the inside out. That's what He's been promising us, is that we have this righteousness that is ours on the inside that is being worked out in us. How does it get worked out? What does it look like? You see, Paul is using these words on purpose. Our spiritual worship. Our truest worship is not a behavioral modification, but a heart transformation. That's what you and I need. And that's what we've been given in Christ. And so today, don't take these notes and be like, I just need to act this way, or I need to be more loving, or I need to be more kind. No, I need the Holy Spirit to do this deep work in me that gets worked out in my life. God, would you do what only you can do? And then if you really want to take some notes on what you should do for your neighbor or your spouse or your child, you should beg God to do what only God can do in their lives. We should be a praying people. We should be on our knees begging God, Lord, would you change a heart that I cannot change? Start with mine. And then start with my household. And start with my friends. God, would you save? And would you do what only you can do so that when you do it, you're glorified? And worship abounds like it's this cyclical thing that becomes exponential where more and more worship, as God continues to do what only God can do, more worship happens in our lives. We need to be that kind of people. I say need to be. God's doing that. And I'm so thankful that we get to do this together and we get to see how God is doing it. I pray that we would never attribute what God is doing to just really good people. Because now we kind of know each other. The Bible's true. Like He didn't have to tell us that none of us are righteous. We saw it. We've seen it. We see it in our kids. We see it in each other. In the way that I parented this week, there's been a lot of unrighteousness. But I'm begging God to do what only He can do, that He would change me. And that He would change each of us. Paul's using these words on purpose. And so we want to pay attention to them. But God gave us His Son Jesus, right? So what is actually being worked out is the righteousness of Christ in the heart of a believer. You Remember Romans 3, 24 and 25 said this. It says that we're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Today, if you've received Christ by faith, you get to walk and worship And then we get to look at the rest of this chapter where Paul begins to talk about like what does that worship look like lived out? So, in verse 3, For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has given him. And he begins to talk about these spiritual gifts that we have. He gives ideas as to what that looks like. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Gifts of prophecy, gifts of faith, gifts of service, gifts of teaching, gifts of gift, the gift of exhortation, which is encouragement, gifts of contribution, gifts of leadership, gifts of to acts of mercy, like all of these giftings that we, as a body, and it takes all of us together. It didn't say just one of you has them. He says all of the body has these gifts that they contribute together, and they should be practicing them. Now, here's what we do. We take this practicing and working in the gifts that the Spirit has given us, and we say, I'm going to do those on Sunday, or maybe I'll do them on community group night or maybe I'll do them in particular places and times but but I Paul never refers to the church as a service he's referring to the church as a people and so you and I get to walk in these gifts all the time acts of mercy acts of leadership acts of prophecy speaking the word of god to one another it's not confined to a moment so let's man if we can do anything today god would you just blow our minds with this idea that worship is all of life and not this 40 minutes where we sit together. So we want to see all of these gifts being worked out and practiced in our lives. And then he, we, most of you probably in your Bibles have a line of demarcation between verse 8 and verse 9. Right? Because now he's talked about the spiritual gifts and he's moving towards like what is the heart? What are our qualities, what are our characteristics that need to be worked out. And he gives us this list of characteristics that the Spirit of Christ produces in us. And it's beautiful. I want you to hear it. Genuine love, brotherly affection, honor, joy, hope, generosity, compassion, forgiveness, empathy, harmony, humility, peace, patience, grace, goodness. Like all of those things get worked out by us together. As as Christ and His Spirit produces these things in us, and if you if you listen to that and you heard hints of the fruit of the Spirit, it's only by His Spirit that any of this happens. But we tend to categorize even as I just did these attributes differently from the spiritual gifts listed in verses three through eight. But we can't. I love Martin Lloyd Jones you ever heard him no asked me the other day he's like who are you listening to cuz I was listening to Martin Lloyd Jones and he's he's uh, from from Great Britain about 50 60 years ago and so he's got a different voice but he just really dry it's great i would encourage you to listen to it but he says this he says it doesn't matter how gifted you are if you are difficult to get along with your gifts are of no value i was <laughs> like man ouch, because my kids would say, I've been difficult to get along with this week. Right? And all of you have probably had somebody that says, man, you've been tough to get along with. Or maybe, by God's grace, they would say, yeah, God's done a work in you that you're able to get, al- you're able to get along with. And I, and I see the way God is using those gifts in your life. You see, we, we tend to prioritize what's above, the gifts of prophecy, the gifts of leadership, the gifts of mercy, those gifts, those gifts and minimize the gifts that we talked about of grace and patience and peace and humility and generosity. But if you see those worked out, if there's a moment in an argument where God does this thing in you and you actually give up your wants and desires and rights at times, and you humble yourself, and you become a peacemaker rather than one who would Create strife. Like that's a miracle of God. And and it happens so often in the people of God that we begin to take it for granted. But if there's any kindness between us, if there's any love, if there's any hope, any generosity, it means that the Spirit of God is doing something in us. And we should rejoice. And it should lead to more worship. It's all packaged together in this transformed life that Paul is talking about and calling us to. This new butterfly, if you will. Probably most of you won't, but that's okay. All right, so all of that is there. And then he moves into chapter 13 and he talks about, listen, that was in relationship to one another. Should it look differently in relationship to the world? No. Verse 13, one. Chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those who exist have been instituted by God. Did our humility have to end with a brother who believes the same things? No. We're called even to be humble beyond that. To those who would reject Christ. To those who don't know Christ. We get to submit to the authorities that God has put over us. And even that submitting actually looks like worship. How do we know? Because it looks like Jesus. You see, the Great Commission, Jesus commanded His disciples... To go into all the world and to preach the gospel. To make disciples. A disciple looks like his master. And so Jesus is telling them, go and do what I've done. And we see Jesus, and we see that He gave up heaven, submitted Himself, humbled Himself, and came and served people like you and me who took Him for granted. People like you and me who actually took Him to the cross. And he gave up his life and served us. Jesus submitted to the authorities. He submitted to the ultimate authority, his father. We saw it in the garden where he says, Lord God, if, Father, if, if you can take this cup from me, do it. But if not, not my will, but your will be done. He submitted to the authorities, the authorities that eventually killed him. And so when I re- submit to authority, as Paul is calling us to here, I'm actually reflecting my master. Just worship. Maybe you're in school and you're like, yeah, but you don't know my teacher. Well, I I know Noah's old teacher when he was homeschooled, and that guy was tough to submit to also. And yet God has put every authority over us. Maybe you go to work and you're like, yeah, but you don't know my boss. It doesn't matter. Like God is is God in charge of everything? Yes. Is he in control of everything? Yes. Has He put us in a place sometimes where we have to submit to authorities that really are bad authorities? Yes. Should we call them out and point them to righteousness? Yes. But do we continue to submit? Yeah. Think about who this message is going to right now. Right? This is the book of Romans. Okay? It's going to the Christians and the Jews in Rome. Thank you, Jesse. All right. That people in Rome, he's calling them to submit to authorities. The authority at the time was the emperor, Claudius, right? And we've, we've talked about this before, but Claudius expelled all the Jews out of Rome. That doesn't seem right. That seems like an abuse of power. Absolutely. Claudius goes away and then Nero comes. And if you know anything about Roman history, you know that Nero was not any better than Claudius. And he actually persecutes the Christians and the Jews. So, Paul is writing to this people and telling them to submit to the authorities that God has put over them. He also talks about leadership. And in verse 4, I just want you to see this and, and take note of it. It says, "For he, um, Sorry, we'll put it in context. So we'll read verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. If you have any leadership role, if there's anybody that would be under you, whether you're a parent and you have children, whether you're a boss at work, or maybe just middle management, or maybe you just have influence in some people's lives, God has given you that role of leadership for this purpose. It says, He is God's servant for your good. As I was reading that, man, it was convicting. Like the different ways that God's just orchestrated in my life, different positions of leadership. And in each one of them, He's called me to be a servant of God for others' good. Not for my comfort. Not so that when I give orders in my home... There would be peace and quiet. No, God's given me to serve, given me roles of leadership to serve others and to serve God. So we, we need to understand, like, that's, that is what godly leadership looks like. And so we want to submit. Talks about paying taxes. I know, like, the timing of this is Poor because tax season, and everybody's thinking, man, I don't want to pay taxes. This stinks. Like, why would you, why would you, I, I'm not doing it on purpose. This is just where we are, and it's telling us what to do. But we, we get to do that. Like, here's the thing. When we begin to see that all of life is worship, that chore of paying taxes now becomes a worship. God, you've given me enough to where I get to serve you by, by paying my taxes. You've provided everything that I need. And I get to serve you and honor you and worship you in this way today. So just, like, if that's the paradigm shift that we're in, it's beautiful. It becomes, rather than this burden and this chore, it becomes a way that we get to serve and honor God. I love how the connection, again, you might have a, a break between verses 7 and 8, but I just want to read them together. It says, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Verse 8, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. We can get caught up in like, all the different ways that we're supposed to serve, that we're supposed to honor that we're supposed to submit, but the reality is that Jesus has already told us, listen, if you love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love others as yourself, you will fulfill the law of God. Love fulfills the law. Jesus, if you remember our time in 1 John, says God who is love, has come and He's fulfilled the law. Matthew 5.17. Jesus has fulfilled the law. And then He says that you and I become law fulfillers as we love one another, as we pay that debt that we owe to one another, the love that we're supposed to have for one another. We fulfill the law of God. Earlier we talked about um, transformation. I'm kind of all over the place in my notes, but I just want you to see this. The, the word that's used for transformation is the same word that is used in the transfiguration. Metamorpho. So, in you and I that are being called to be transformed, the same thing is happening that happened to Jesus as He's on the, on the mountain. He's transfigured. He's changed. And so, you and I get to walk in that change. That glorified, beautiful god-glorifying thing that jesus was doing with elijah and moses like crazy stuff you and i get to do it today even as we pay taxes even as we love one another even as we do these little things of laying down our lives for one another this transforming work is being done in us now we who are in christ continue to fulfill the law it's beautiful it can feel overwhelming if we think that we have to do it. But remember, you don't have to do it. God is doing it through you by the work of his Spirit. And so we just rejoice that it's being done. We do have this call to submit our lives, to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. And as we do that, we get to see what God does. Chapter 14, 14, 15, and 16. I'm going to blow through quick because we're running out of time. But chapter 14, Paul reminds the church about maintaining the unity of the church. And where is that unity of the church found? It's found because each of us who are, who are the church are unified to Christ. We've died to ourselves and we live with Him. Romans 14, 7-9 says this, For none, none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's, for to this end Christ died and lived again, that He might be both Lord of the dead and of the living. Any practical unity that would take place, any agreement, or any unity and disagreement, because that can happen too. We think that unity means agreement. That's not necessarily true. Unity means that we have something greater than whatever it is that we're disagreeing on that Keeps us together. And for us, we have this unity in Christ. That we are all united to Christ. And that means we are also united to each other. Because that's true. We live in a way that doesn't judge or cause others to judge. And that's really where he drives that, remember? Because there's this, this unity that's happening between the Jewish Christians... And the Gentile Christians, and they're judging one another. And one is thinking that you should have to conform to the fullness of the law. And the other one says, no, I've been set free. But Paul says, listen, because you are united to Christ, there's a way that you're supposed to live. So let's look at it. 15 through 19 of chapter 14. For if your brother is greed by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Yeah, you're free. You're free. But if you exercising your freedom is causing another person... Who Christ died and paid for by his shed blood to stumble and to sin, then stop doing it. That's the beauty of this. He's saying, hey, don't judge and don't cause another to judge you. And so we live in a way that would pursue what makes for peace and what makes for mutual upbuilding. And we're going to circle back to this and we're going to dive in deeper. But you need to understand, like, there is a way that we can live that, that Paul. Is calling us to that God is calling us to through Paul that would both not judge and not cause others to judge. And it's a way of humility, it's a way of giving up my freedom sometimes so that others would be free to practice, be free to love, be free to worship. And Paul sums it up nicely at the end of chapter 14. And this is one of the most convicting verses of the Bible that I've ever read, so be careful. It says this, 14 verse 23, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Listen, we devote so much of our time to not sinning, and Paul's saying, no, you need to devote your time to faith. Like, operate in faith. Live in a way that is faithful to what Christ has called you to. And then you don't have to worry about sin. But if you're focusing on sin, listen, anything outside of faith that's not done in faith is sin. Even the good things that you're doing. like God begins to peel back those onion layers that we have that... Like those first couple, we can fix that outside observation, our outside behavior, but as we get closer to to our hearts, it just gets really despicable. It's really messed up. My heart is so sinful and deceitful. And yet, God is doing this work of changing my heart. And He's actually producing that by faith. Faith is an inner thing. That transformation that you and I need begins in our hearts. By faith. And so now I actually live out of that faith. God, You have paid for my sin. I'm free to repent. I'm free to change. I'm free to be honest about where I've hurt and wronged people because You paid for that. And I get to glorify You in the midst of my repentance. And So maybe today, like God's calling you and He's speaking to you, and there's some things that you need to repent of. Don't see that as this burden, but see it as a joy that I get to glorify God even in my repentance. Even thinking about that, I'm thinking about the ways that I've I've spoken to people, the ways that I've been wrong. And I try to hide those things rather than repenting and asking for forgiveness. But listen, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That means we got a lot of sin. A lot of things to repent of. A lot of things to turn from. And that's okay. That's good. Because it means that God's going to be glorified even in my repentance. 15 and 16, Paul is talking about Christ. Talking about Christ, the union of Jews and Gentiles. Finally, in these chapters, Paul calls the Jews and Gentiles to live in harmony to glorify God. Verses 5-7 through of chapter 15 say this, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Um, one of the things that I that I discovered in some of my research um, and, and study this week is F. F. Bruce writes um, this book called uh, New Testament History, and um, he has this idea that listen as Paul writes. The chapter sixteen, and you see, like it's greetings to all these different names that you don't know. It it could be grouped up into like five different groups, and so some of the understanding that he has, and that a lot of scholars have, is that the church was not a unified gathering in the city of in the city of Rome, but it was actually in a lot of different places. And so I've always pictured this as I'm reading this book, like like us all of us gathering here right but really it could have been just a couple households in different places hearing these words hearing these words that are calling them to practice their unity together and he thinks that probably Jews Christians of Jewish descent didn't necessarily have to hang out with gentiles and so they just went about their lives in separate places. I've always thought, yeah, they did, but then they would gather back for worship on Sundays. See, even there, I just said, worship is confined to a Sunday morning. But he's saying, no, like, actually they may not have. And so what, what's become countercultural then is Paul, Paul is saying, listen, we need to do that. We should be gathering together. We shouldn't be segregating into our own little sections And so if you even go back to the beginning of Romans, it's not written to a particular church. Think about Romans 1.7. It says this, "...to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ." It's almost got this individual call to each of those who would claim Christ and say, Christ is mine. Well, if that's the case, then you're unified together as one people. Doesn't matter about the Jews or the Gentiles or where your heritage is from or what you've practiced in your religion. It matters that you're called in one body to one savior, Jesus Christ. And so he's saying that the unity that they have is not even because they would gather together. The unity that they would have is because they're one in Christ. You and I need to have that mentality and that thought too we need to realize that the church is so much bigger than this room maybe even bigger than two congregations maybe even bigger than uh just all of the cross points that are scattered throughout central florida no the church is way bigger than you and i know it's also way smaller like i would say there's a truth to that too not everybody that gathers on sunday mornings is like doing it because they love jesus some of them are doing it because that's Parents made them. Some of them are doing it because that's what they've always done and they just feel like that's what they should do and they're trying to earn God's righteousness or or earn God's approval by their own righteousness. But it's so much more bigger than what you and I see here. and So we just need to remember that and remember that Christ is calling us not to a unity just in our local space, but a unity as the body of Christ. And There's so much disunity, particularly on... Uh, social media and on the internet and like as we become this global thing um, amongst people who profess Christ. And so we need to pray. Again, same thing. Like the same prayer we had earlier. God, do what only you can do. We need to have that prayer for the big C church that God would do what only He can do, that He would unify us around Himself. God, would you make us one people for your glory. And so because that's... Possible that it's true that all these households maintain like a, a segregation or, or, or at least a separate uh, gathering spaces, all the more reason that Paul would call them to this unity in Christ. Well, he ends with greetings to a bunch of different people, and I would just butcher the names, and I haven't had enough time to do all the prep to say them correctly. So we'll wait till we get there um, at the end of chapter 16 in probably a couple of years. But I want to finish with this. Paul closes with the reminder that it's God who has done this work in the church. All the things that we've been tasked with, like how do we create unity? No, we don't create it. God's creating it. How do we create brotherly affection and love for one another? We don't. God's creating it. How do we create submissive hearts to the rulers and authorities? We don't. God is doing that. We get to be active in that. And Paul reminds us that it's that God that we would worship with our lives. Romans sixteen twenty five 25-27, we read it at the beginning. Now to Him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Even in this exhortation, Paul calls us to glorify, glorify God, but he calls us to glorify God through obedience and faith. We can't just, with our words, say that God is worthy, and with our lives, proclaim that he's not. With our lives, proclaim that I'm worthy. Like, there has to be this orthodoxy and orthopraxy that are saying the same thing. And the way that we do it is we believe that God is doing this and we worship Him with our whole lives. So that's our call this morning. That in everything, that you and I would have right belief leading to right worship. God, we thank You that this is true. God, even as we've heard it with our ears, we've thought, man, that's a lot. That's a high calling. There's even a sense of maybe um, conviction, possibly even guilt. Lord, and I just pray that You would wipe all of that away. Yeah, because we, we believe that Your Word is true and You said that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because You took the condemnation upon Yourself. You were condemned so that we would not be. So Lord, even as we see where we haven't worshipped with our whole lives, that it would not be a... Dr- Um, a sense of guilt but a sense of opportunity God that we would say man I have so much more to give you and I want to give you my whole life all of my heart all of my soul all of my mind and all of my strength Lord would you do that by the work of your spirit in us today changing us transforming us so that we would know what your will is your right perfect will we walk in that today. God, we believe that that's only done by the power of your Spirit. So, the Holy Spirit, do that in us. Change us so that you would be glorified. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen.